This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. I am back from Alaska. Uh, I'm whatever the Alaskan equivalent of tan, rested, and ready is um, for this podcast. I want to thank Chris Starwalt for taking over the microphone for a little bit. Um, one of these days, we should just have him on and pretend and have him say he's me and see how many people notice, um, given how many people say we sound alike. Very excited about today's guest. She is not a new guest. She's a return guest from a million years ago. One of the earliest guests, one of my f- truly one of my favorite people in the entire world of eggheadery. I was just telling her, um, alas, her camera isn't working for our little dialogue thing, so I won't be able to read some of her, like, cues or eye rolls and that kind of thing, which I'm sure there will be many, but it's also a tragedy because I was telling her, and I mean this sincerely and, and with no offense attended to the hundreds of other remnant guests, but she is in the 0.0001% of the most aesthetically pleasing people to look at given the, the nature of, of the world of egg, eggheadery. Um, and, um, so I'm, I'm bummed. I won't be able to actually see her. I am of course referring to Christine Rosen, uh, who I've known for a good while now. Um, she's a senior writer over at Commentary. You probably know her as one of the most, as, as the most euphonious of the brief punctuation marks in John Podhoritz's monologues at that quote-unquote group podcast. She's also a fellow of some sort at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia and she is a senior editor at the New Atlantis, which is a great magazine. She writes lots of stuff. She writes uh, monthly for, the, for commentary. And uh, welcome back to The Remnant, and sorry for that tongue-tied uh, intro. No, no problem. Thank you so much. I was going to jump in there and show how I've been honing my interruption skills. So when I'm back on the Commentary Magazine podcast in September, I'm just going to lay waste to any monologues and jump in there. Do you I'm like, kidding. Do you have, do you like you and Noah and Abe just have like, like little signs that you hold up to say to Pod, breathe? Um, <laughs> we try. He's gotten better. He's totally aware when he's when he's monologuing, and he'll usually say at the end of it, "I've just been, you know, going on and on." Someone jump in, but in in many cases, he's expressing thoughts that we share. So piling on and adding to it is really useless. So we'll just change the subject and move on. But. Yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, John's one of the smartest guys I know. It's not like what he says is wrong per se, but it's just a, like it's just. I find it hilarious sometimes where he'll ask a question and you can't be quite sure whether it was rhetorical or not. And right. clearly the people in the group can't decide whether it is or not. And then when it's not rhetorical, they'll start to answer it. And they'll, you know, Noah will get maybe two sentences in before John says, Noah raises a really interesting point. We should explore that. And like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get crap from John about all this, but so be it. It's the price. I, it's, it, it's the price one pays for friendship with John Pedoritz. Um, you know, it's really, it, it's fun too, because the podcast, which we started going daily during lockdown, because we were just 
jumping on Zoom and, you know, complaining to each other. And then we finally realized we should do something productive from it. It really is like a, like a family. So we all get along, we all know each other's quirks and, um, it, it actually makes it a lot of fun. And I don't think, I mean, we get our, our dander up on certain issues that we, some of us really want to throw down on or disagree on, but it is always, it always ends in kind of the good natured group hug sort of feeling like it, it's a good crew. Yeah, no, I listen to it almost every day. Um, there are days I miss it or um, where I had just recently talked to Pod about whatever the topic was. And I was just like, I, I just don't need to hear more about this. I mean, like, I don't, I found myself shutting down about the Uvalde shooting because it just, mm -hmm. it's so, so enraging and so tragic and gross. And like mm -hmm. listening to people talk about how the cops didn't go in. Mm -hmm. That's horrifying. I just, I can't. I can't do it anymore. Um, but anyway, uh, at some point we have to come up with the right analogy for Noah Rothman, whoever was the most earnest member of some Politburo. Um, <laughs> that's Noah's role. I was thinking uh, of a boy band, not a Politburo, but I like Politburo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're in it. So it can't be a boy band. No, um, it's true. All right. So where should we begin? Why don't we start with something, um, that I, we are in violent agreement on, um, uh, you wrote about for NR, uh, that, uh, I, I think is a pretty compelling case. Uh, make the case for listeners who don't know the argument about why we should just flat out raise the age limit to allow kids to be on social media. Yes, it's, uh, this, this is a story I just read for national review, but it has been based on ongoing conversations. We've, we've had conversations about this over the years. I've had them with a number of other people. And we're all, as conservatives, really allergic to the idea of the federal government coming in and nanny-stating with families with regard to the choices they make for their children. We, we're all on the same page there. But there's also this growing sense, I think, among a lot of people, particularly parents of tween and teenagers, that this is a different order of magnitude, social media, and its, and its impact on kids' lives. It's really not like comic books or video, even like video games. It's it's a much more ubiquitous thing in the lives of ever younger children. So the current, for, for listeners who don't know, uh, officially, no one under the age of 13 is supposed to be on any social media platform, right? This, as we know, is just ridiculous. There are tons of kids uh, as young as eight, nine years old, 10 years old. They're on Instagram, TikTok. Um, no, they're not on Facebook, of course. That's just for old people now. But Snapchat, you know, all of these platforms actually, despite having this fig leaf of age authorization, in fact, allows anyone on and there are really no consequences for that. And so I think what we've seen, particularly after the, the long extended school closures, lockdowns, uh, virtual school, the opportunity costs of spending so much time online on these platforms for ever younger children, the harms are now starting to outweigh the benefits. And I'm not saying there are no benefits. I'm, I'm not a complete Luddite, although I'm often accused of being one. So the case I would make is that when when the uh, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act uh, was first enacted, this is before Facebook even existed, the, the debate over the age uh, was uh, settled on 13 as a compromise. Senator Ed Markey actually wanted 16. And I'm, I'm kind of a fan of 16. I think 18 might be too old. <laughs> I think of it like a car. Social media is now a very powerful tool. And just like any powerful tool, whether it's... Um, uh, an automobile or whether it's say, you know, smoking cigarettes or having alcohol as a society, we have to come to some agreement on what an age limit is. Will kids break the rules? Of course they always have. Does that mean we shouldn't have them? No. It, I think it's time as a society, we start to have this discussion about social media because we really are starting to see some real harms generated by their use. Yeah. I mean, the, like, uh, remember when, um, I mean, it got blown up in the courts, but when Biden issued the, the corporate mandate for vaccination. Mm -hmm. And the whole argument at the time was how CEOs being the, the sort of sausage spine cowards that they are, they, they liked it because it just gave them the ability to say, Hey, look, it's not my call. It's the law. And I think the sort of, there are a lot of parents who would like that too. Right. It's just sort of like, yes, Obviously, they're going to be parents who are inattentive because there are 13-year-olds who do drugs, right? So, mm -hmm. like, there are going to be 13-year-olds who figure out how to get on social media. But for the parents at the margins, at, on the bubble, where they don't necessarily like or aren't necessarily willing to stand up to their kids about this kind of stuff, 
because they don't want to be uncool. It helps them say, hey, look, you know, this is just the rule. It's not my doing, and we're just going to go by the rule. And and the thing that attracts me to it the most is, as we've seen, and, and, and you know, you follow this stuff a lot more closely than I do, there are so many sort of angels on the head of a pin, you know, Gordian knot constitutional ways that people, unconstitutional ways people want to play with to fix social media that Mm -hmm. are really complicated. And this is not, this is just sort of like we have age limits. We have age requirements for R rated movies. You can have age, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing unconstitutional about setting an age limit at 18 for this, that it's just, it's so simple that it's very attractive to me compared to putting some bureaucrat in charge of monitoring how content is moderated and all that kind of thing. Exactly. It is, and it's funny, of course, there was the predictable, I got some, you know, mean mail from the predictable libertarian backlash. And again, like I, I have certain instincts that are also libertarian. So I, I assumed this would come, but there was this, oh, this is just another moral panic by conservatives who use children as a shield because they want to control the culture and they don't want to just let everybody do anything. And I'm thinking, I uh, my kid can't walk into a tattoo parlor right now and get a get a you know right. a back tat if he wanted one. Um, why should he be allowed to go on a platform designed for adults, not designed for children? Uh, have all his data hoovered up and and profited from by a company that could care less how old he is because they just want his eyes on that screen as much as possible. So I think you're right. I think it does give parents are the first line of defense for this. We know this already. And I've been one of those parents who's been going on and on for years, you know, tediously at this point saying, make sure you set limits for your kids. Try to put off giving them a smartphone until they're older. I, I've done all that too. We've all done that. We, we understand there's risk to these technologies. But I think now as a society, we're really seeing that it's it, it, the, the worm has turned. Remember back, back in the day when Facebook and all these other companies started coming out, you had a lot of people going, this is going to be fantastic. Oh, we'll all connect. It's just going to be such a kumbaya moment online for everyone. Well, we're a long way from that now. And even progressives and liberals are saying, eh, these companies might not be so great. Uh, they, they elected Donald Trump after all. They must be terrible. So y- there is still a cultural acceptance right now that maybe we should have a little more skepticism about what these companies are doing. And that's why I think it's important to seize that with kids. I agree with you. I don't think we need to... Uh, Facebook shouldn't be censoring content. I'm I'm much more libertarian when it comes to adults, and I'm pretty hardcore free speech person. But we're talking here about children, and we're not even talking about 15 and 16-year-olds. We're talking about 8, 9, and 10-year-olds. I mean, right. young, young children who shouldn't be on these platforms. So when you, when you say the, the, the things are made for adults, is this, in, how much of that is an argument about how our brains haven't finished cooking yet? Um, and how much of it is just about poor decision-making and, 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 um, you know, the normal arguments about minors. Cause we're hearing, we go in these, we have these moments where, um, and I, I personally enjoy following the inconsistencies on the logic of this stuff, but like where after 18 year olds do these horrific shootings, you know, we're like, your brain's not fully developing. They can't have guns. An argument I'm totally open to, by the way. Um, but, then three weeks later, sort of the same crowd will be telling us we really should lower the voting age to 16. Right. And, um, you know, so voting on who gets nuclear weapons is totally fine for an undeveloped brain. But, you know, getting a, a squirrel rifle is totally unacceptable for an 18 year old brain. I, I, you know, anyway, I've, but how much of it do you think how much credence do you put into the the research that says it's just particularly bad for developing brains? I, some credence, I should say. So I, my, my overall caveat when it comes to research about social media is that we have such a very small picture of the total. And the reason we have a very small picture of the total impact of this, particularly on kids, is that these companies, the private companies, they don't give up their data. What we do, what we can track are certain trends, particularly in mental health for younger people over the last five to 10 years. Those are not good. Meanwhile, other more risky behaviors like, you know, or having sex at a young age, drinking at a young age, all those are actually going down. So some risky behaviors for youth are, are declining, but the mental health stuff is very concerning, but that's correlation. These companies will not reveal their data, even to scholars. Scholars have been begging Facebook and, you know, Snapchat, all these places for more transparency with regard to their data so that they can study the impact of this. 
Um, the companies don't want to give this up. What we do know comes from whistleblowers like the, the woman at Facebook who testified to what Instagram's own internal research knows about its harmful impact, particularly on teenage girls. They know it's bad, but they also know that the all, what they're looking for is a reaction to keep someone on a platform. That reaction can be feeling bad about yourself, feeling angry about someone else. It doesn't have to be a good feeling. So they know this. And part of the reason I think they don't share that data, even with scholars and academics, is that it would not look good for them. People would actually see what how people, young people in particular, interact with these platforms and see the risk a little more clearly. So I would say that a lot of what we see so far is correlation, which is not causation, but we can, I think, start coming to some broad conclusions about certainly about the opportunity cost of the amount of time that kids are spending on these platforms versus doing other stuff that kids could do, like being in face-to-face -face interaction with their peers, uh, exercising, doing any other activity that isn't screen-based. So we can, we can say, we know that some of these trends are not looking good. We can also look at how we as adults use these platforms and say, ah, doesn't always bring out the best tendency. The better angels of our nature are not encouraged by, you know, constant TikTok use. Um, what, what social media do you use? I use no social media with the exception of I am, I was finally drafted onto a Facebook, pro sorry, a meta product, WhatsApp, because I have some parent groups that I became involved in when all those school lockdowns and stuff happened and they were only functioning on WhatsApp. So I don't use any other social media platform, not LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, none of those. I'm on no social media. But that's just my personal preference because if I was on social media, I'd probably already have been fired multiple times. So <laughs> um, it's kind of a self-protective thing for me. So you don't even do the, the lurker John Pod thing on Twitter where you look at it, but you just don't tweet? No, I have. I don't even have an account. Wow. No. Look at I you. mean, I will occasionally someone will say I am for me. My social media is very small. We have a group text uh, chain that we have a commentary. So if anything crazy blows up on social media, one of the guys will send it to me. Like they'll they'll right. send me a link and be like, look at this crazy thing that it's always like Taylor Lawrence. Look at this thing she wrote. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel informed, but it's so ambient now, particularly in the media class that you, yeah. you don't, you know, you'll no, see all it you have eventually. To do is just hang out with Noah Rothman and he'll tell you about it. In right, few right. But I just don't think you appreciate just how many of my dog tweets you've missed. Um, <laughs> I, I do regret that. I do regret that because you have amazing dogs. So. <laughs> literally, literally thousands. Um, uh, um, so before we move on for a second, but like just to stay on this, where do you come down on just flat out banning online porn or figuring out a way to limit its reach? That's a tough one. It, it, because then you're starting to talk about uh, what adults are allowed to do with their time. Look, I think it's bad for people. I think it's particularly bad for young men who, who, who grow up and mature sexually thinking that porn is how the real world works and then are right. shocked. I, I've talked to both the young men and young women who tell horror stories of what it's like to date someone who who has gotten all of their information about sexual intimacy from porn. Yeah. That said, one thing you could do, honestly, is, and this would also apply to social media use for kids, we need better uh, age authentication procedures for online use. We know we can do this. European countries are already doing it. Have a, a stricter protocol for making sure people verify their age before they can look at some of this stuff. That's possible. We do not have the will to do that. Um, and there will be plenty of workarounds and, you know, plenty of sites that could avoid that, that people will find, um, in general, when it comes to porn use, honestly, that's a conversation parents, that really is where you have to have conversations starting at a kind of shockingly young age yeah, because yeah. it's everywhere. But I, I was just talking to a friend who has, you know, younger boy, I have teenage boys. I started the conversation pretty young with them because they had, you know, friends and cousins who were, you know mischievous, let's just say. So I knew they were going to see it. So we talked about it. We, uh, It's really important for parents to do that. And I think parents, particularly our generation of like Gen X, like, oh, they'll be fine. We were okay. No, we have to, we have to start that conversation sooner. I mean, for starters, just most women don't have five inch heels when they have sex. It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, maybe occasionally if you're on vacation. But yeah, I, I, I just said most, you know, I, 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 but, you know, just anyway. No judgment. Uh, no, no judgment. No, no judgment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, years ago, Nick Schultz, you remember Nick Schultz. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, we wrote this piece uh, for NR where, and I still think it's a great idea. It just, no one 
I talked to a couple senators about it and then just kind of went nowhere. Uh, we argue that you should create a domain called instead of .com or .gov called .kids where it was hardwired to be sort of like the app store on Apple, just hardwired, impossible to have porn or age inappropriate stuff at that domain. And that would allow parents to buy devices for kids that were incapable of going to domains that didn't have the dot kids thing. Exactly. Corporations yeah. would love it, right? You know, all you know, you, mm-hmm. you can still put Wikipedia on there. I mean, there are lots of things, you know, you can't because some of the responses we got from people was like, you can't, you know, you, kids need to know how to use the internet for research and for school. Well, all that stuff could be on there, but you couldn't have, you know, violent or gross or weird stuff. And mm-hmm. um and you know, just like creating safe spaces on the internet for kids should be such an obviously bipartisan idea, and yet it it's weirdly not. Yes. And it's I mean, it was interesting to go. I went back and reread some of the early, you know, kind of the legislative history around uh COPPA, the you know, the Online Privacy Protection Act, and why we didn't set a higher age and why we didn't have more restrictions with regard to children's best interests. And it's because, I mean, it's the tale as old as time, as oldest time in Washington, D.C. It's, you know, lobbying. So the interest groups were fascinating to me, though, around this, because on the one hand, you had you had this sort of burgeoning tech industry, which made its, you know, completely reasonable free market argument that you cannot uh, impose these restrictions on private businesses and it should be 13-year-old age limit, not 16. But you also had a lot of sort of social justice, um, civil liberties groups saying, we have to, we actually don't want to put age limits on these sites for children because we want them to have access to birth control information, abortion services, all this stuff that, in fact, most parents would be like, no, we really want parents involved in those decisions. But there, there is a kind of activist class that we have seen, I think, explode in the last few years in particular, which actually wants to adultify, that's not a word, but I'm saying it anyway, to adultify children when it comes to uh, sex, for example, but wants to treat them like children when they commit crimes. So here in right. DC, as you know, you know, if you're under 25 years old, you literally can get away with murder. You're treated as a juvenile because the progressive city council thinks, you know, says, oh, well, your brain's not fully developed till then. Well, yes and no. So yeah, you can't rent a car till you're 25, but without paying a lot of fees. But uh, I, I think you're right to, to to go back to what you said earlier. There's a lot of sort of contradictory arguments being made about when is a child old enough to handle certain responsibilities. But we ha- we can make those decisions, and we should do it with social media right now because there is a lot of impetus. I think both on uh, and it's it is a compromise position from we should censor. It's this isn't about censorship. It's about protecting kids for whom they are not equipped or or really developmentally um, able to understand what they're confronting when they go to these online platforms. And it, this encourages business. Businesses like Facebook can create a kid's version, like the dot kids thing you were saying. Right. They can create a platform that's a social media or communication platform that has built-in protections for children. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, people would say, well, it would be, you know, that kind of thing would be just, it get disney so quickly. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's like, fine. That's better than what they'll find on some of these sites. You tell parents that you can leave your kid in a room with a device and the worst that they'll get is Disney fare. Right. And they're like, okay, that's that's what I was hoping for, you know? Right. Um mm-hmm. and you know, and I and I'm with you. Like uh it is very easy for people who don't have kids to get super judgy about parenting stuff and um and there, I remember back in the early days of a lot of this stuff, you'd get a lot of the sort of, I don't know if it was Ezra Klein, but sort of that generation of young progressives who would just write things like, I don't understand why this is so controversial. Just don't let your kids do this, that, or the other thing, you know? And it's, <laughs> it's hard. And yeah. like with, you know, we have an only child, you know, we have a daughter and like a lot of the arguments about not giving her a phone were very persuasive to me. But when you have an only child and like, they're off doing something by themselves without a sibling, you know, that kind of thing. You've just, it's just more nervous making about, yes. you know, not being able to to find them. And that's why like the find phone function was my wildlife tracker for my, my daughter. And I, 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 I well, and- but that, that's exactly right. And I think, and that's one of the examples of where a technology can, 
uh, in the right hands and with the right parenting strategies, give kids more freedom than they might have had otherwise, especially if you're raising, and I say particularly for young women, sending a young woman out on her own in a city is different than sending a young man out. That is just a reality. I think right. most parents feel better sending, like a son, it's different than a daughter. There are all these distinctions. But I, I, I think it's ironic that we have this insane cult of safetyism with regard to children. Like, don't let your kid cross the street by him or herself. Don't let them walk to the playground. You know, we have to have a helmet on for every activity and only organic snacks. It's kind of over the top with regard to their physical safety in the physical world. But when it comes to the online world, everyone's like, eh, what can we do? Off they go. Kids right. being kids. It's like, no, we can do something there too, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I'd much rather my kid risk injury playing in the woods than playing unsupervised online. You there know? you go. Well, and, and long term, a broken bone will heal, but right. a broken mind or a broken sense of self-esteem and self-worth takes a lot longer to heal. Yeah. And I, mean, we, we, I want to move on to other stuff, but like one of the things that it just was very obvious to me about how much harder, you know, particularly girls have it in their teen years compared to when I was a kid is that, look, girls always cried or got upset when they weren't invited to the cool kids party, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. just part of growing up. And I'm sure a lot of boys cried too. Um, but um, it's one thing to find, to hear all about it Monday morning when you go back to school. It's another thing to watch it basically online in real time mm -hmm. and not be invited to it. Right. And um, that FOMO stuff is really powerful um, mm -hmm. for young kids. And, you know, it just and leaving them off, keeping them off social media until their senior year, at least, um, just makes just a huge amount of sense to me, um, even though obviously it wouldn't be a perfect solution because as conservatives, we believe there are no perfect solutions. Exactly. All right. So it's funny. I've been meaning, I, I've been traveling. I was in Alaska and I saw one of my notifications said there was some new study about epigenetics and I meant to read up on it because I'm, I'm intrigued, but not necessarily persuaded by mm -hmm. epigenetics. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it would be really nice in some ways if all of it were true as sort of for, for various reasons, but, uh, um, It'd be bad if it were true for other reasons, but anyway. Um, but then I saw that you have a new piece in the in the just off the presses issue of commentary called "How Trauma Became a Political Tool." Tool. So why don't you sort of explain the thesis, but also sort of explain what epigenetics is for the uninitiated? Sure. So for the uninitiated, in in general, the epigenetics is this idea that you. Genetic change can happen uh, based on uh, experiences in the physical world. So. The, the, the typical example was this idea that a giraffe has a long neck because over time, reaching, stretching for leaves to eat caused each generation of giraffe's necks to get longer. We don't have genetic proof for this, but there is, a, there is some intriguing new research, very small scale at this point, about whether particularly traumatic events in the life of, say, a parent can affect um, the child that's born to that parent? Is there some mark or some way that that stress or the anxiety or the trauma can impact the physical health of the next generation? That's what epigenetics is trying to find out right now. So one of the studies, for example, again, very small scale, was looking at the children of Holocaust survivors and trying to see if there was actually any genetic evidence of, of the trauma that those parents had endured that appeared in, in other ways in, in the next generation. Um, and there were interesting, quirky things they have found. But the science on this is extremely new. There, there's not a ton of evidence that it's real. A lot of other scientists have completely poo-pooed it. They said, this is ridiculous. This is like not, we don't have evidence that this is happening. But it's an intriguing area of genetic research what, right now. What were the quirky things that they found, just out of curiosity? Well, the idea that there might be different, like they were measuring things like cortisol levels, stress, stress hormone type stuff uh, in the next generation to see if they might be elevated compared to, you know, children who weren't, who didn't have Holocaust survivor parents, just, they're, they're just trying to, it's kind of like trying to solve a mystery backwards. Like you, you, you have your victim and then you're going backwards in time. They're trying to see if there are patterns of genetic trauma that can be passed on. But of course, in the hands of American popular culture, which already loves, you know, has never met a victim it doesn't like, and victimology has become our reigning cultural uh, standard, said, oh, well, of course, if you can inherit trauma from your parents, then it can it, it can go all the way back in time, and, and this will affect you all the way forward in time. And, it, and it's a way to 
say that everything's trauma, right? Everything becomes trauma. So if your parents were born poor or with a certain skin color uh, and they are descendants of someone who was once a slave, then your behavior today in real time is impacted by that in such a way that some of it should perhaps be excused or explained away. Or And this is being done. There are lots of books being turned out. There's been this bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score, which was actually written by a doctor who who talks more about uh, dealing with real trauma victims. And by real trauma victims, I mean people who have suffered brutal assault, rape, uh, wartime crime, like the kind of stuff that we generally think of as traumatic. Um, we've now defined trauma down. So anything is trauma, right? You get dumped by your boyfriend uh, in a text message versus in real life. That's traumatic. We have to talk about it. Tra- Everything is trauma. The word is popping up everywhere. And that's actually what prompted me writing this piece because I thought, why is everyone, why is everything trauma now? You know, everything's trauma. Uh, it's Everything is not trauma. And we need to start drawing some very clear lines, um, particularly evidence-based lines about what, what can be called trauma, particularly intergenerational trauma, and what is not trauma. Yeah, on the on the uh, on the epigenetics thing, I mean, the reason why I said it would be nice in some ways is that you know the call it the the hard version of the Charles Murray argument mm-hmm. is a very depressing argument, you know, about yes, it is group differences being baked into the cake and yada yada yada, and that there's just not much that intervention can do to improve outcomes on all sorts of metrics, and if the reality were okay so to the extent there is a genetic component to these explanations of group differences it's explained not by you know sort of baked into the cake stuff but by you know trauma stress social social stress kind of stuff that means it's kind of fixable and open to amelioration in the sort of, you know, Francis Bacon relief of man's estate kind of way and and gives us agency in fixing all sorts of social disparities and social problems. Um, and that's all I meant by it. You know, it, 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 it's an explanation that sort of empowers people to actually do things. Now, the problem with empowering people to do things is that the people who want to do things are always looking for excuses to do social engineering stuff. And right. it seems like this is the argument that they're going to now. I mean, in the fifties and sixties, it was psychology. Um, in the tens and twenties, as you know, you know, better than most, cause you wrote a book about this stuff. It was eugenics. Um, and, uh, and now it's, you know, epigenetics. And so anyway, I'm, I'm interested in it. I just, I worry about these sort of, the, the the license that people will take with it based upon, you know, pretty murky research. Well, and you, it, you're right to be worried. And I'm glad you brought up the word agency because that's actually individual agency is something that obviously as conservatives, we're, we're very aware of and we're, we're extremely keen on preventing um, its erosion. This argument, which is now uh, popping up in public policy context in an interesting way, you see a lot of uh, progressives, certainly members of the squad. Um, Ayanna Presley is always using the word trauma and violence. She talks about policy violence all mm-hmm. the time. If, if she if she thinks every student loan should be forgiven immediately, um, and you say no, that's financially and also kind of ethically a questionable subject. We should debate. She'll be like, you are committing policy violence. You know, if you don't forgive everyone's mortgages and rents, then you're committing policy violence. It's by the policy violence language is based on this idea that everything's a trauma, right? right? And that that's an excuse rather than an explanation. And I think in policy terms, that's very dangerous. We've, we really are getting to a point where the emotional appeal of excuse making um, for large groups of people <laughs> has become the go-to versus trying to first understand a complicated problem and then find an explanation for it that would allow for a policy solution if necessary. And I think as conservatives, individual agency and, and local institutions are always our go-to for a reason, because they do tend to understand the quirks better. And I am concerned about a society that just thinks that invoking trauma should shut down a conversation. I'll give you an example. You know, when when January 6th happened, uh, you know, not long after that, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez live streamed this whole uh, discussion about all of her trauma she was not in the building. She was down the street. Obviously, she's one. She's a very high-profile individual who who receives a lot of threats. So I, I certainly wouldn't second guess that she would have felt fear. But the trauma language was was invoked to basically shut down conversation or criticism right. of her, not to encourage an understanding of those events in that day and what might have happened. And that's where I start to get very annoyed with with public figures when they invoke trauma for those political purposes. 
Yeah, no, I remember being just amazed at how quickly I was, but I mean, you probably know better than I, but like four or five years ago, it, it was, it was like one of these memes that just sort of exploded across the op-ed pages. The idea that, um, this, because the same centers of your brain light up when you feel physical pain mm-hmm. as when you feel psychological pain from, from traumatic words, mm-hmm. um, that words are, are violence. And mm-hmm. what was just sort of amazing about it was that it was sort of simultaneous with the sort of downplaying of actual violence by like BLM protesters or that kind of thing. So that it, we got to the point really quickly a while ago where speech was violence, but violence was speech. Exactly. And that's just a yeah. incredibly stupid place to be. <laughs> well, and it's this is where I'll tell you one of the books that's coming out. I think it's coming out this fall um, that I looked into is called The Myth of Normal. The Myth of Normal. And the argument is basically that just to exist in the modern world is a constant trauma for everyone. And if that's your baseline, how do you even think about repairing what needs to be repaired in society, about building things that need to be built? You can't. It becomes very quickly for a lot of people an excuse to, to, it's really, it becomes nihilism uh, down the line, but it's, it's a very dangerous way to understand how systems work and their impact on individuals. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it's funny because like there's, I mean, it's funny when you mention nihilism about it, because if you read a lot of the sort of pre or proto or anticipatorily fascist writers of the twenties mm. and thirties, this, or even the, the tens and, you know, the turn of the century, it's all of this stuff about how life is struggle, right? About how, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have to, you know, that, that you have to rebel against not just bourgeois norms and customs and the iron cage of reason and yada, 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 but that, that everything is an assault on you. And, and you can see how this kind of thinking can just get society and just, I'm not saying that it's going to lead to fascism and, or invading Poland or anything, but like, you can just see how it leads to sort of an everything is permitted, but nothing is allowed kind of, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of social engineering kind of policy framework. Um, and it was for that reason, you know, Lamarckianism, which was the right. sort of uh, twentieth, the late nineteenth, early twentieth century version of of uh, the idea that uh, inherit the inheritance of acquired characteristics was possible. The last holdouts was were Soviet scientists. They loved right. the idea that you could literally mold the basis of human humanity by by imposing on human beings certain behaviors that would then be carried on in the next generation. And I think you're absolutely right that. Some of the rhetoric, I mean, it was interesting. The uh, So the Biden administration has this national strategy on gender equity and equality. And I look, I was reading it for other reasons, because as you know, I'm interested in sort of, you know, post-feminist women's issues, all this stuff. But trauma appears in that uh, report a lot, the strategy report. I think like 17 or 18 times, there's like trauma-informed this and trauma-informed that. But they never define it. They don't even define what trauma-informed means. It's become a kind of catch-all phrase that can't be attacked. So they put it in front of a a questionable policy idea. And then if you attack the policy idea, they're like, how could you say that to a victim of trauma? And then you're getting, it's like the Violence Against Women Act. There were certain aspects of the Violence Against Women Act that were not great policy. Some were good, but there were some questionable things. But the moment you challenged it, how could, so you're for violence against women? I mean, it's, it's brilliant as rhetoric, but it's dangerous as policymaking. Yeah, no, it's it's such an ancient trick right i mean my, my favorite mm-hmm. example of this which i've brought up many times is in the tv show parks and rec where there's a crazy cult that worships a volcano mouth lizard god named zorp yes. and <laughs> they are in this cult and they're all wearing like the cult members are all wearing flannel and khakis and look like you know um you know that they're they're gonna make the early bird special at ihop but um uh they uh they call their cult the reasonableists because they want to be able to say that anybody who criticizes them is against reason. There you go. So I've been trying to, I, I try really hard because I, I live way too online a life, partly because of the nature of my work and um, partly because I'm a great indoorsman. But uh, I try to calibrate, to, to sort of do gut check stuff about 
how much of the stuff that people are freaking out about is really a product of being very online and how much of it is a real world problem. And, um, and I go back and forth about trying to figure out where I come down on this stuff. And, um, you know, the, 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 the example I was going to give is completely flown out of my mind. So I'll switch it to the transgender thing. Um, where, um, I, uh, I have real sympathy for the, whatever the statistically reliable, real, whatever the real world number is mm. for people who have gender dysphoria, or certainly if they're born intersex and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have real sympathy for them. I have, uh, uh, one might even say, I have empathy, you know, I have empathy for them and all that kind of thing. And, um, but when you see these numbers about the number of like teenage girls who claim to identify as being somewhere on the um on the the non-binary spectrum mm-hmm. um it just strikes me as is sort of obviously not just sort of controversially or possibly but obviously an example of sort of of sort of mimetic social contagiousness you know um because if if these numbers were grounded in real reality in in the sort of the way people people's actual feelings were we would have been talking about transgender stuff 50 years ago 100 years ago 1000 years ago people have been talking about the quote unquote threat of homosexuality for a very long time because homosexuality is a thing mhm this and I, so taking the 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 realness of a handful of cases out of it, the vast bulk of these numbers they just can't be be like real in the sense of reflecting people's let's let's put it this way biological reality um or am I missing something no i think I think that's right. It's a really important point because if you think about it, it, the 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 question and the statistical number we hear thrown out there a lot we hear two things on social media in particular about transgender youth. The first is that if you don't you know, drop any criticism and embrace them, they'll all commit suicide. Suicide rates are so high. Well, those studies have been thoroughly examined by people like Jesse Single and others who've looked at the numbers and said, well, even, I mean, there's some elevated suicide risk, but you have to decouple it from pre-existing mental health conditions for a lot of these kids who were suffering from depression and and other problems that had nothing to do with gender issues. So there's that. But there's clearly a social contagion effect here because the follow-up questions when done by good polling folks and people doing research to a lot of these kids, particularly the young girls who say that they now identify as trans, you know, as trans men, you ask them, okay, well, so what is your sexual preference? What have you actually done sexually with someone, you know, where you're the trans man and this is, you know, are you attracted to women? Are you attracted to men? And often their sexual behavior is thoroughly heterosexual, right. but they identify in this other way. So there's clearly this sort of sense of belonging among some of these groups. And to, this, and to the social media being the real world or not, it's certainly, we know it has um, real world effects for real people. We see, we've seen that with cancel culture, call out culture, all, all of that. But most people need to understand that a lot of what drives media in stories in particular, I, I now think I, I, I'm always telling this to people. So if they've heard me say this before, forgive me. But uh, Twitter in particular is just a crazy progressive coven. It's it's white, well-educated, extremely progressive women who dominate on Twitter. They, they drive political discussion on Twitter. So it's not a community. It's literally it, it's a very particular group of people with a group of assumptions uh, driving a lot of the conversation and then the reaction to that. Um, and that's why I think you see a lot of escalatory events, particularly among media personalities when it comes to Twitter wars. But on the transgender point, it's it's quite dangerous to uh, assume not just that we should, I'm not saying we shouldn't help kids who are dealing with these confusions because those confusions are real. Um, but the medicalization of it, that the, 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 we're outliers in the, in the United States compared to the rest of the world in medicalizing this and, and giving kids blocking puberty for mm-hmm. young children who will never be able then to have children one day who are who will wreck their bodies with what's being done to them and then maybe perhaps later regret it. That is very concerning. And people like Abigail Schreier and others have been doing excellent work um, on this. This idea that we all have to immediately embrace 
another person's identity. I don't get that. Yeah. I mean, not just because I'm conservative, because I wouldn't get that. I, I was raised Christian fundamentalist, as you know, and we had a lot of crazy ideas. I thought the rapture was going to happen at any moment. Um, and I still have friends who believe that. I didn't walk around my community and insist that all my neighbors prepare for the rapture with me. I didn't insist they put a sign in their yard that said, if this house is unmanned, you know, I'm I'm in heaven. Like they were all... I didn't impose that on others. And there's a way in which social media allows the views of very small minorities to impose on others and force others to engage in culture wars in particular that they really don't have any interest in being involved in and really shouldn't have to be involved in. It's an elimination of a freedom to just be neutral, the freedom to stay out of some of those battles. Now everyone's expected to choose sides. Yeah, but it's also like, I mean, again, Policing inconsistencies is sometimes just sort of a kind of which I, I my instincts want to go there, but it's kind of sometimes just a way to sort of stay on the sidelines and not actually engage in the actual arguments. But that said, let's do it. Um, <laughs> you know, the, I mean, like I I I don't I you know maybe and I, I this is you know, this this goes. I mean, I, I don't want to put myself on the couch here, but like like I I kind of really believe that like. If you if you've convinced yourself that something is a principle, um, constantly changing it to fit the moods of the moment is a bad idea, and that's why you know I didn't go in for the Trumpism stuff and and whatever. And so, like, I remember really agonizing and taking seriously in my fights about gay marriage with you know everyone from Andrew Sullivan on down, and I ultimately became persuaded by their arguments. Um, And one of the core arguments that I am persuaded by is that um, there's just a non-trivial number of people who are simply born gay. Now, whether that's a genetic thing, a congenital thing, a hormone thing in, in utero, I and mean, there are all sorts of interesting arguments about it, but I think it's just simply true. And because, and one of the reasons why that part was so crucial to sort of uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but like normalizing and mainstreaming homosexuals in American life and, and, and going for gay marriage and all of these other things is because there were a lot of people who thought it was a social contagion thing that you could be like made gay, that gayness would rub off on you and that right. kind of thing. And, um, and that gayness was a choice. And what people like Jonathan Roush and, and Andrew Sullivan and others had to argue was, no, no, it's, it's just, it's not a choice. And now, 20 years later, I see people arguing all, all over the place that your sexuality is a choice. And that, um, and, and I think that's I, I, a little, I mean, Sullivan uh, apparently has done a lot of, you know, calling out of the BS about the trans activists, but I'm surprised how many gays have not sort of chimed in on the danger that this new argument poses, um, sort of culturally to homosexuality. But Moreover, like, why is it, why was it the most evil thing in the world for Rachel Dolezal to declare herself black um, and steal black identity, but it's like something to celebrate when men adopt female identity? I mean, there's a weird double standard in there that I, I haven't seen sort of explained in any sort of, you know, coherent way. No, I think I think it's right. Both take a kind of post-modern uh, approach to identity, where effectively anything goes. I will say, if you if you want to understand just the the viciousness of some of the the truly radical trans activism, you should look at what they have said and done to lesbians. And I will say that the the most vigorous, vociferous, and um, articulate advocates for what we're talking about right here are um, there's a group of lesbians in the UK who have just stood up time and time again to protect all female institutions, to say, no, a man should not be allowed into a women's prison. He will rape the prisoners. This is happening. This is happening in California. The female prisoners are suing the state to try to get these men out of their prisons because they pose a physical risk. And uh, the the other thing that was attacked, these women had to respond to was this idea that you know, men were suing to to be uh, to work in rape shelters. They shouldn't be in. They have no business being in a rape crisis center as someone with male genitalia. That is a threat to these women who were already victimized. And most importantly, to try to govern who they are sexually attracted to. So there's this whole. If you talk to anyone who's who is a lesbian, they will have heard this if they are plugged into the kind of Twitter universe. 
this idea that of trans misogyny, like you're transphobic if you're a lesbian who's attracted to someone who has female sexual parts, mm -hmm. that you're supposed to, as a lesbian, set that aside. And the open-minded thing to do is to declare that you're just as sexually attracted to someone who still has male genitalia. And I can't believe I'm like going on and on about genitalia on your show. I apologize. But it's a really difficult issue. And it speaks to this idea that declaring identity cannot be the same thing as recognizing biological reality. Yeah. It simply cannot because it puts people at risk. It puts children at risk. It puts um, adult women at risk and adult men at risk. We've seen the debates over, for example, trans athletes. And we have one good sign that people are starting to think about this uh, more clearly. The swimming organizations have said, we're going to have a separate category for trans swimmers. Mm -hmm. They haven't said you're banned. What they've said is you're different. And that difference shouldn't be uh, uh, suppressed. It should be celebrated in its own category. And so that is fairness because a woman cannot beat someone who went through male puberty at any sport. The women's soccer team that's very much and, and you know, justly celebrated for their athletic prowess was defeated by a bunch of 15-year-olds a few years ago, 15-year-old yeah. boys. So you actually, they, they make these claims that are totally removed from biological realities. We have to confront those realities. They're not going away. Yeah, I remember my my wife, the fair Jessica, r reviewed this book called "The Frailty Myth," like twenty mm. twenty something mm -hmm. years ago in the standard in the Weekly Standard. Um, may she rest in peace. And um, uh, and the whole argument of the frailty myth for listeners who don't remember, uh, my wife did a lot of stuff on Title IX when it was based. awesome. Yes, she basically saved Title IX from the the radical activism of a previous generation, um, which was basically just aimed at college sports back then, mm -hmm. and. Um, but, uh, um, and she holds paper as, as do I on the fact that so many, when at the end of her book, Tilting the Playing Field, she sort of warned like this logic is not going to stay in sports. It's going to go to like the hard sciences and stuff. And so many people made fun of her. Mm -hmm. And now that's like, uh, you know, she was, she was the Cassandra. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> but this frailty myth book was amazing. It was that sh the entire argument was in all seriousness that the only reason why women don't compete at the exact same level as men on things like weightlifting is because of the cultural norms and institutions and the misogyny of the culture that tells women that they shouldn't embrace athletics. As, you know, I mean, and, it's, and it's just like, it's so ridiculous. And, um, can um, I just, I just have to, I have to cackle loudly because just last night I was teaching a bunch of beginners, uh, at an Aikido class, men and women. And you actually, like when you get into a physical fight, or even if you're training on how to defend yourself in a physical fight, the rules become immediately clear. We have a lot, we train a lot of young women. They're great. They're always very enthusiastic. They are shocked when I tell them that, yeah, that's not, you're not going to be able to protect yourself against someone that big if you do this. But if you try this, this might work. Right. But like the, the physical reality when you're literally standing in front of it, when a six foot two guy with a lot of muscle comes at you full tilt, Suddenly, words really don't matter because right. there's real. You have to know how physically to use your body in a way, and you you have to immediately accept the limitations of your physical body, particularly if you're female. Um, it doesn't mean you can't defend yourself, but there the the idea that we that we should just talk ourselves out of that, and that we should talk our children into radical medical treatments that they might later come to regret is is horrifying to me. It's horrifying. Yeah, and I just I mean the and the, just the sort of again, sticking on this point about consistency is like we as a culture invested an enormous amount of time and resources into the idea that women should be as into sports as men. And, yes. and it was largely successful and it was largely, you know, a good thing. Uh, you know, we, you can nitpick at the margins. And one of the key points about all that was like telling men that you should be as supportive of like your daughter in basketball or soccer mm -hmm. or whatever, as you are of your son and not think that the sports are for the boys and the dolls are for the girls and all that. That's all great. And now the left is telling all of these dads that you're a bigot if you're opposed to um, uh, boys competing on your girl's soccer team. Exactly. Well, and they're going to encode, they're literally going to turn Title IX on its head because the Biden administration is about to release new new guidance on Title IX probably later this month or next month that is going to embrace the transgender stuff. It's going to say 
true equity to what Title IX is meant to be applied as is is to allow anyone to do anything. And, you know, to, to pro- it's bigotry if you don't allow trans athletes to, to go on to the teams that they to, with which they identify versus with which their physiological advantage should leave them. So, yeah, it's it's coming. I mean, that the Biden administration is all in on that. It's kind of alarming how quickly it was captured by the activists. That's a pretty fringe activist group, but they are 100% on board if if what I've heard from Title IX folks is correct. So I, I, this is, and now I remember where I wanted to go because um, I was going to bring up before you did the, the 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 swimming decision. And you know, if 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 you spend all your time, I mean, one of the things that's if you spend all your time online, it's very easy to convince yourself everything's going to go down the toilet any any day now, right? And um, <laughs> I kind of. Some so I, I try to I, I try to do this sort of Ben Wattenberg thing and look for the positive trends, even though it's not my nature normally. Um, I'm much more of a cheer up for the worst is yet to come kind of guy. But um, the swimming decision, I think, is a positive thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix issued this letter to its employees saying, "Look, if you got a problem with the politics of of some of our shows, uh, you either should find another job or suck it up and do your job." And and you see little, you know, shoots of light along these lines, you know, a whole bunch of places. I'm a big believer in in sort of, you know, Edmund Burke's, you know, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other that, you know, you have to make mistakes to, to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, it feels like this, we're sort of we may be on the cusp of a tipping point where people are like, yeah, now this is all ridiculous. We're learning, we're doing it with gas right now. It's like all of a sudden mm-hmm. Biden's, you know, hectoring people. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, you know, long-term how, I know you come from a podcast whose like official logo is crushing morosity, but, um, I have a t-shirt that says just that, um, <laughs> um, how much, despair do you actually have or do you think that we have the capacity to sort of learn from our mistakes and 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 pull out of some of this stuff i you know i if you'd asked me a year year or year and a half ago i probably would have been more morose but i was uh, inspired by my lovely colleague abe greenwald who started to say you know we need to look for signs of a counter revolution because culturally and historically we see those right you see you know the reagan revolution was sort of a thing people and it wasn't just a thing in terms of politics it was a cultural movement so just as we've seen a, a lot of cultural progressivism which seems to be reigning and winning all these all these uh culture war battles i think we're there's always a pendulum swing back the question is how f- when you swing back what do you what ground are you are you taking back for the for the vast majority of Americans who are just in the moderate middle who are tolerant people who don't want to be lectured to but who believe that men and women have some fundamental differences that are baked in the cake right that that's that's the question with this and i think unfortunately that's why you're seeing a lot of both on the part of our political leaders on the left and a lot of the activist class a, a real effort to change the way words are used and their meaning not just the pronouns debate although that's part of it but to call things that are that are opinions uh, uh, that are different from yours or or disagreements over fact misinformation disinformation so you you you've seen in the recent i would say past year in particular an effort to shut down conversations rather than to just have it out that worries me because even if the conservative or moderate minded people can regain some of these sensible middle the language in which we have these debates, in particular the public policy debates, is becoming very narrow and very difficult, even for people who have good intentions on both sides and want to hash things out. There's so many tripwires among our uh, in our ability to to just have these conversations. I mean, you, I'm sure you've been in many conversations where you're speaking to college students and you have to think and measure about what words you use and the language you use, and and you can inadvertently trip on one of these wires and and yeah. you know. The words are violence point that you made earlier. So I worry about that part of it, but I do think we're coming back to some sanity on some of this stuff, particularly on the gender stuff, because people raise boys and girls. They know that there are differences, and it doesn't mean the differences, as you say, mean girls shouldn't play sports. It means we have to recognize biological reality and not pretend it doesn't exist. So here's where I think we can bring all of these trends sort of full circle into one thing, is that because on the one hand, these language games have been around for a very, 
very long time. Orwell was writing about something that was, you know, 100 years or more in the making already, yes. Yeah, and like, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't, I can't begin to count how many times I've wrote columns in the late 90s, early 2000s about language games. My book, Tyranny Clichés, mm-hmm. underrated as it is, has um, is, is largely about this stuff. You know, the George Lakoff kind of, if we just mm-hmm. call trial, uh, trial lawyers community protection attorneys, everyone will love <laughs> trial lawyers, right? And But now we're talking about people who menstruate and chest feeders. Yes. That's I, what I, I am. And that's, I'm, you know, that's, and, yeah. <laughs> and that's, it's not, I mean, I agree, it's totally nuts. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I keep thinking back to, um, I, I wrote about this at the time, there was a, uh, they built a statue of firefighters uh, from a real picture of firefighters like raising a flag at mm-hmm. the grounds of 9-11 at the World Trade Center. And yes, yes, I remember that. And they changed the ethnicities of them to make it look more like a Benetton ad. So like, I have no problem with, like if it was sort of like the pictures on Euros, Euro bills have like generic European looking things that don't actually don't align with reality. That's one thing. But like, it was a real world pose that they were just changing the people in it, which I thought mm-hmm. was kind of creepy. At least that's my memory of it. This is 20 years ago now. But there was a line from the head of like the Black Firefighters Union, which I was so upset to find out. I think it's called something Vulcans, which I thought was awesome, but um, mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with Star Trek. But um, <laughs> there was some line where the guy says, I don't think we should get bogged down in mere factual correctness. And I always loved that phrase because like normally we dismiss, the, oh, that's just political correctness. Why give into that? And this idea of like, oh, yeah, factual correctness, you know, who pays attention to that? And that's the era we've been in for like the last 25 years. I think mm-hmm. the difference is this stuff you were talking about earlier where, you know, I've been making this point for a long time. I think we must have talked about it where, you know, political correctness is a very old thing, depending on how you want to date it. But mm-hmm. um it's at least been around as Gen Xers our entire adult lives. And the difference between the old days where, you know, I remember making fun of people in college who said that we shouldn't call them seminars. We should call them ovulars, Um, you know, (laughs) and and all the The classic, you know, history is history and all that kind of stuff. The difference now is that the students are much more likely to buy into this garbage. Right. And because of this trauma thing, right, because this language empowers them to claim victim status. And I think this gets into the fragility stuff you were talking about before, the Jonathan Haidt mm-hmm. argument about, you know, the runaway safetyism has taught a generation of mainstream elite kids that if words make them uncomfortable, that's violence, that's bullying, that's evil. And it makes this stuff more dangerous because it's medicalized what were once just sort of the just the dumb arguments about political correctness. I think that's completely right. And the other thing it does is make it difficult to make legitimate policy arguments about things like age limits for social media or who should be able to do what at what age, because it all becomes, um, that's actually not extreme safetyism, in my opinion. Some of the stuff we do to kids is extreme safetyism and we should stop, like it's overkill. But there, but it, it becomes very difficult to have those debates and those discussions in this milieu where everything is my truth, right? We don't talk about truth, we talk about my truth. Right. Um, everything is very emotionally laden uh, with terms like trauma and violence. And the words cease to mean anything. They become a kind of weapon in, and they stop debate, they stop discussion. And that is, in fact, the intention of most of the people who wield them uh, in that way. So that's something I hope maybe a younger generation will get away from. Social media use really encourages that way of, of communicating, unfortunately. It rewards uh, uh, extremes of emotion. Um, and that's something that I think, again, like is anyone who is a parent of teenagers will tell you, Teenagers are emotional enough. They really don't need the accelerant of constant social media use to be emotion, their emotional selves. Yeah, and they also don't, I mean, I mean, this is a point I made in my last book, but like the, the last thing teenagers need, children in general need, is to be told that their emotions are the ultimate arbiter of moral truth. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like this idea of, which goes back to romanticism, that like you're you know, the inner light of your own feelings is the more authentic source of truth. Mm-hmm. Being one of the things about being a teenager is you've got a lot of feelings that are really unjustified and stupid. Exactly. <laughs> and like, you know, like, and like being told, you know, go with your gut, go with your instincts, go with your feelings. Um, 
is the argument for jumping off the bridge because everyone else is doing it. You know, I mean, it's 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 for doing the stupid things that teenagers do because they want to go along with with the crowd and or don't want to seem, you know, you know, weak or stupid or whatever and are unpopular. And the whole point of raising kids is to civilize them because they really are barbarians. Yes. Yeah. In the most delightful way. That's so true. That's so true. And and it's not just saying that your emotions should guide your judgment because the whole the whole point of virtue ethics and, and moral education is the opposite direction. It's saying, yes, you have these emotions, recognize them, tame them when needed, uh, harness them and direct them when needed. They're all, look, we need courage. Courage, you know, we need courageous people who will are willing to fight to protect our country, but we do not need people teenagers in, in the hallway in middle school settling fights that way, right? So you, you teach them to distinguish those emotions from action. That's, the, that's what moral education has long been about. What we're doing now is not only saying be guided by those emotions, but when you act on them in a way that's detrimental to another human being, we'll make an excuse for you. We'll right. find a reason to explain that away. And that worries me as well in terms of long-term moral health. I mean, you know, Christian doctrine a lot better than I do, but like it's, listening to this it's kind of amazing when you think about how what the original like seven deadly sins were and <laughs> like gluttony the and, reason yeah. you would do them <laughs> is because you would give into your emotions right, right. <laughs> I mean, like, it was would, weakness right right, right. If, you know so much of it is if it feels good do it you know and that that covers like four or five of them you know yes. um, <laughs> um anyway uh christine it is always wonderful i hope we can have you back on more um Always happy to be on. Particularly if it, if it, if it annoys John Pogoritz, because um, this is one of the areas <laughs> where We can where heckle I, him from afar. <laughs> I do give in to my emotions. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my, my, my schadenfreude um, uh, about having him suffer uh, in, in non-fatal ways is, is just too strong to resist. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. And um, it was you. lovely to talk to you. Yes, you as well. Thanks so much. Okay, so um, I'm actually recording this close several hours later because we had a, a conflicting event, and that's a totally uninteresting fact. But if I sound different, that's why. Um, so uh, it was great talking to Christine. We could have gone, I could have gone for a very long time. I find Christine Rosen not only one of the smartest people I know, but one of the easiest to talk to. Though at this front, at this point, I can't specifically remember all of the things that I wanted to say to sort of sum up our conversation with enough specificity to, to sum up our conversation. So let me just say, um, thanks again to Christine. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you again to Chris Starwalt, um, for subbing for me and thanks to, uh, and I'll, well, I'll tell everybody about my Alaska, my very brief Alaska adventure on the solo pod. And, um, and if you are, on what we call the free list to the dispatch, um, by which I mean you're not a member, but you are a, but you subscribe to the free newsletters like the Friday G file. Um, you should be getting pretty soon this letter from me asking you to become a full fledged member. Um, look, I get it. Times are tough. People are struggling. They're cutting costs. They're not adding them. And so if you can't swing it, I totally understand. But if you can, and you've just been holding out, from a direct ask from me or for whatever, uh, please consider it. And, uh, cause I really do think it's, um, a great value. Um, I think I, I did the math. It's something like 28 cents a day. And, um, and the more members we get, the more cool, fun stuff we can do, the more events we can do, uh, the more reporting we can do, the more, uh, great talents we can hire. Um, and, uh, the more uh, goodness we can achieve in the world. So with that, uh, thanks so much for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. 
Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.